It was uh, several years ago that I was asked to speak on a lectureship, and the theme of the lectureship was what's right with the church. And I thought, what a great theme. We hear all day about what's wrong with the church. I love to talk about what's right with it. And so they handed out assignments, and my topic was, what's right with the church? We worship correctly. Okay. And they'll start looking at the different assignments that were given to other speakers. And they all related to what's right with the church? We don't do this. What's right with the church? Well, we don't do this. We don't do that. And it's like you turned a positive into a negative real quick. Not to say there's not a place for talking about those kind of things, but we can't even talk about what's right with the church without focusing again on the negative. Folks, I, I have an opportunity to travel around and, and speak at other places, and I can tell you the church isn't in that bad a shape. We've got some great ministers. We've got some great young people, as we see every year at Shine and Preacher Training Camp. The church is in good hands. We've got a lot of things to be excited about, and I want to focus on those things for the next few weeks. In fact, almost up to the end of the year. This has been our theme this year, in case you forgot. I love my church, and I want to talk about the different aspects that go along with that, the different traits that we should have because we love the church, but it really goes deeper than that even, as we'll talk about here in a few minutes with commitment. You know, Sam and I were talking about this on the podcast one day, and Sam made a point, so I'm going to blame him if you take this wrong, but he said, you know, we, at every church, we stand up and we, we start by welcoming our visitors. Thank you for being here. You know, and certainly we should do that. But thank you for being here as members. Thank you as members for being here. We love our visitors and we hope that visitors come in and, and that they want to be a part of this. But thank our members for being here because you make us. You are the core of who we are and what we do. We don't have a church without you. So yes, it's great that we have visitors coming in, and we're thankful our visitors are here, and yes, you're our honored guest and all that, but let's not forget, members, you're why we exist. You're the core of who we are. You make us, and so let's not just push the members aside and just only focus on the visitors. What do we talk about when we talk about commitment? Where does the conversation usually turn or focus? When we talk about commitment, it usually goes to church attendance. That's what we talk about when we talk about commitment. If you were committed, you would be here every time the doors were open. Folks, commitment's a lot deeper than that. When we're talking about commitment, we're talking about something far greater than just your church attendance. You see, there are fruits of commitment, and one of those is you attending worship. But as you've heard me say before, just sitting in a chicken house doesn't make you a chicken, and just sitting in a pew doesn't make you an avid worshiper, right? Doesn't make you a Christian. When it comes to commitment, we focus on the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments form the basis of Christianity. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Love God, love your fellow man. And when you love God with all your being, you're going to love your fellow man. And when you love God with all your being, you're going to be committed to him. And thus, you're going to be committed to the things that he's committed to, right? which is other people, but also the church and, you know, serving and all those other things. So there's fruit, and often we focus on the fruit when we don't get to the heart or the root of commitment. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. When we talk about commitment, 
we typically focus in on a few passages, and this is one of them. Beginning in verse 24 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches, who is weak without my being weak, who is led into sin without my intense concern. You want to be committed? Then be like Paul. That's what we do. We pull out these passages and we say that if you were truly committed, you would be like a Paul. Or we turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 and following. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and, and scourgings, floggings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. We talk about our first century brethren and what they endured for the cause of Christ, and we ask the question, are you committed? Are you committed like that? Folks, let's, let's admit something here. We're comparing apples to oranges. We're not in that situation. We're not. So yes, we can look to them and their commitment, and we can use that as an example and say, well, these folks were all in, and we should be all in. So you can make a connection there, but that's not our situation, at least not now. Who knows what the future holds, but that's not us now. What is the biggest threat to our commitment level? I propose that it's this. Life. I think that's it. I think for us as Christians, the biggest threat to our commitment level, being all in disciples, is life. It's school, it's work, it's extracurricular activities, it may be the internet, it may be your phone, I, I don't know. But that's the biggest threat to our livelihood as disciples. It's life in general. Everyday life is the biggest threat to our commitment. If the first century Christian martyrs could look down from heaven on us today, what would they think? It scares me to think what they might say, right? Can you imagine the conversations that would happen? Can you believe this? He's skipping church to go to the deer woods or the golf course. Hey, Paul, check this out. This guy is keeping his whole family home from church so they can rest up because they have a ball game this afternoon. Can you imagine what they would say as they look down on us? These folks are going everywhere else in life, but they're not coming to church because of COVID. What would they say? I guess the example we set wasn't good enough, maybe. Maybe that's what they would say. How comical, but also how sad we would appear to those who came before us. We, we don't know the first thing about commitment or sacrifice, at least not on their level. Life has gotten in the way. It has consumed us. And our hearts are so full of the temporal that there's no room for the eternal. And isn't it strange that Chris would do a lesson on commitment to people who are here? 
I do realize the irony in that. I do thank you for being here. But I also think the best time to speak on a topic like commitment is when things are going good. And they are. Our attendance is up. We're growing. I mean, look at this attendance on a Sunday night. There's a lot of churches that would love to have this. This is great. But just as a friendly reminder, let's not be so focused on now that we can't see later. I think it was Jimmy Jividen that said we need to have two feet on the ground and two eyes looking towards heaven. We need to have eternity stamped on our eyeballs. And so commitment is key in that, right? It's key to get us through life because life is the biggest threat to our commitment. We don't look forward to heaven as much because we've created heaven right here. And that's sad. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. We talked about Habakkuk this morning. We're talking about Haggai this evening. And yes, that was planned. Why Haggai? Because Haggai was written to people just like you and me. If you've read through the book of Haggai, you see a lot of similarities with people in this day and age. Haggai is speaking to people with misplaced priorities. That may not describe you, but it describes a lot of people in our culture and a lot of Christians even. So Babylon had been destroyed. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple some 70 years prior. As the years passed, Jerusalem slowly came back to life as the Jews returned from exile and faced the daunting task of rebuilding. Homes were built, stores were open, crops started to get harvested again. Life began to return to normal. However, there was a major problem. And the major problem was that as people got back to life as normal, as we are trying to do as well, the temple was lying in ruins. You think about the ramifications of that. Don't read past that. The temple was lying in ruins. So where were the people worshiping? Were they neglecting worship as they went about their daily routine? Had life gotten in the way of their commitment to God? Absolutely. So if you look at it, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and following, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? So the people start by making excuses. Well, we intend to get to it. We just haven't had time. We've got all these other things that we have to take care of. We'll eventually get around to it. The time isn't right. Of course, the people had no uh, trouble finding time to harvest their crops, to build their paneled houses, to open up businesses. It's just that their priorities were out of whack. They were busy with everything except the one thing that they should have started with, which was rebuilding the temple. That should have been their first task. And I think we're much like this sometimes. I know I am. Much of our lives are spent tending to things that they matter, but they don't matter in eternity. And we put undue attention on them. We give them more gravity than the situation maybe demands. We spend such an inordinate amount of time tending to these life matters that the Lord and his church kind of get pushed to the back burner if they're, if they're even on the stove at all. And we have to justify it, right? We can't, we can't deal with the truth. We can't handle the truth. And so like Haggai, like the people in Haggai's day, we, we make excuses, right? Well, I'll get more involved when things kind of settle down. You know, I know I hadn't been real regular at church, but I... I'll get back to it. I've just got a lot of things going on in my life right now. I've got so many irons in the fire. I just don't have time to do all the things that, uh, you know, the church needs me to do. The time isn't right, basically. 
And we essentially say the same thing that the people did in Haggai's day. Our excuses, while they sound good to us, they're like belly buttons. Everybody's got one and they serve no purpose. Love the Lord your God with all of your being. What does that look like? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what does that produce in your life? The first step to putting the Lord and his church in their proper place is to stop making excuses and start owning your responsibility. We all know what should come first, so it's as simple as not allowing the sideshow to become the main event, not allowing the ancillary or the peripheral to push out what should be at the forefront. Notice verse 4 again. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? You may remember when we were doing our kind of our COVID services over there in the, in, in the, in the family center on Wednesday nights. We talked about Haggai a little bit. And I mentioned that paneled houses here is a reference to detail. These folks had not just built their house, but they had put all the finishing touches on it. You know, they had the white picket fence, the well-manicured lawn, the sprinkler system. I mean, they had put everything into it to make sure that they were beautiful. Nothing had remained uh, untouched except the temple. The temple's lying in ruins. Now, it's important to understand that Haggai is not condemning the people for having nice things. He's not saying it's a sin that you built paneled houses. Now, the problem comes in in that you spent all your time and energy on that while neglecting the things of first importance, the main things to keep the main thing the main thing. And you hadn't kept the main thing the main thing. That's the problem. And if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'd be doing that. The bent of our hearts is always selfishness. The default setting in our heart is always selfish. And so we have to change the default setting. And if you're like me, I fight against that all the time. You always have to fight that default setting. A full-on commitment to the Lord and his church takes the focus off of us and it shines the spotlight directly on God and others. The Jews needed to step out of the limelight and see the bigger picture. That is what we typically need to do as well. We need to see beyond our noses beyond this little world and empire that we've created ourselves and see the bigger picture, right? As a result of their excuse-making and their selfishness, the Israelites experienced adversity and hardship. Notice verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put in a purse with holes. In other words, because you have spent so much time pursuing the wrong thing or pursuing things that shouldn't come first... You're going to reach a dead end in all those things. They're not going to produce any fruit. So by, de- by neglecting the temple and worship, the people are going to miss out on the blessings of God. God's going to take away those things that they labored for. They're going to work and show no profit. They're going to plant, but they're not going to reap a harvest. They're going to be active, but have no satisfaction. No matter how hard they try, they're just going to be spinning their wheels. And you've probably figured out that when you pursue the temporal above the eternal, you just spin your wheels as well. When I was a kid, I convinced my mom to buy me a hamster. I thought this would be the coolest thing. I'd have a hamster that I could love and take care of. You know what that hamster did all day? He slept or he ran on a wheel. It's the most boring pet I ever had. And we can be pretty boring too. 
You know, we just go about our routine, we run on our wheel, and that's about it. It's kind of like the pilot who, who doesn't make the necessary adjustments. Sometimes they're just little bitty adjustments, but after time, if you don't make those necessary adjustments, you, you end up thousands of miles off course. We've got to constantly be making the adjustments. The tweaking has to happen or we're going to stray off course. And the Lord's church plays an instrumental role in that. You know, we talk about commitment to his church as being a, a, a fruit and not the root of the problem, but the church offers a free buffet every Sunday and Wednesday. And my guess is, if you're like me, I, I don't know that I spend the proper amount of time growing myself, feeding myself, nourishing myself. I need the church. The church can't do all of that for me. I've got to be a self-feeder at some point. But the church can provide a free spiritual buffet every week. Why would we neglect that? Why would we push that aside and say, no, I don't need that? We all need it, right? Notice verse 8 of Haggai 1. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. So there comes a point where we just have to act, like the Nike slogan, just do it. We've got to just do it. I mean, all the preaching in the world isn't going to make you. uh, We know what the problem is. You know, you can, read a, you can read a book about it and all that, but at the end of the day, you just have to do it. Just do it. Make the necessary changes. Say no to some things. Evaluate your life and determine what is out of whack, and then do something about it. For God's people, it was cutting down trees. That's what they needed to do. Stop making excuses. Stop being selfish and start doing something. The Jews had been very active. That They had been active in the wrong things, and it was time to get active about the right things. Perhaps this applies to you. Maybe you've been diligent in the wrong things or at least things that aren't as important. Ask yourself a few simple questions. Is God being honored in my life? Is everything I do about bringing glory to God, am I allowing the secondary or the peripheral to be the primary? Am I pursuing right things? Am I worshiping an idol? And that's a, that's a tricky one. Thomas Talley did a great job in our 40s through 60s class talking about idolatry and walking away from idolatry. Anything can, can become an idol, right? Even good things, even my family, even my spouse can become an idol. Evaluate your life, do an audit, and determine are there things in your life that need to be dispensed of? Are there things that simply need to be moved on down the list a little bit? You get God right, you get everything right. I believe that with all my heart, and I understand that I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here. But we need to lead the way in commitment, right? This group here is the ones who lead the way in commitment. Members, deacons, elders, ministers, and staff. We lead the way in this. And we lead the way by loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. With all of our being. But also by considering the end. Consider the end. We know how this whole story plays out, right? We can turn to the back of the Bible and see the ending, and the ending is we win. God wins, and if we stay on his side, we win. And folks, I've done more than my fair share of funerals. I've done hundreds of funerals in my career, and I've done just quite a few in the last few weeks. And I can tell you this, whether it's sitting at the bedside of someone who is about to pass away, or whether it's sitting down with the family of one who has passed away. I can tell you this, without fail, 100% of the time, 
The conversation and the focus is never about how much money they earned. The conversation or the focus is never about all of their accomplishments and all those kind of things. When I'm at the bedside of someone whose heart is about to beat for the last time, you know what their only concern is? Being right with God. Being in his presence for all eternity. When I sit down with a family who lost a loved one, many times that's a joyous occasion. Even though it's sad, even though it hurts, there's a lot of joy when that person was a child of God. And they can find the silver lining. They can see the hope in that. And so we sit down and we talk about what they want shared at the funeral and all that. And they inevitably start laughing as they share stories. Because it is a joyous occasion. Because they know that nothing was lost, right? If you lose something, you don't know where it's at. So they didn't lose anything. They didn't lose their loved one. They know where they're at. But I've also sat with families where the whole time it was a struggle. It was difficult because they knew. They knew that their, that their loved one didn't live a life that was dedicated to God. That they weren't a Christian. That they weren't in Christ. And for them, there wasn't that hope. They wanted to hold out hope, but they knew that there was that missing piece, and that piece was huge. It was, it was a God-shaped hole. But at the end, the only thing that truly matters is did you live your life for God? Were you committed to Him? You know, I love the quote by A.W. Tozer that I've shared with you a thousand times. Every man is as close to God as he wants to be. You say, well, I just want to be closer to God. No, you don't. You don't. You're as close to God right now as you want to be. How close do you want to be to God? People are remembered for how they finish. There's no way around that. You will be remembered for how you finish. Think about the tenor and tone of your funeral. What will it be? You know, if I'm there and I'm to speak a few words, what will I say? What will the tenor and tone be like? Think, think about your, your funeral. Think about... Who is there? Think about what will be said. And think about how people will react. My prayer is that, that at my funeral there is, there is a celebration. I, I say all the time, and you know, you, you guys can honor this if I go before you. I, I, want, I want a bowl of Skittles on my chest. So when you walk by, you're like, you know, sad. And you're, oh, yeah, Skittles. Uh, I want this to be a party. I mean, I, I'm not going to be there. Celebrate. Have a good time. No, in all seriousness. Think about the tenor and tone of that day. While it will be sad, while there will be tears shed, will there be this rejoicing as well because your family knows and your friend knows that you're much better off than they are? Or will it be a time of sadness because you spent all your time here on earth pursuing things that ultimately didn't matter? Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Thank you for this church family. Thank you so much for the commitment that you have made to us. And may we always be committed to you. May we always seek to love you deeper and to serve you better. God, we are so grateful for what you've done for us. May we, may we always, always put you first and allow you to relegate everything else in our lives. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Can we help you tonight? David's going to lead us in a song. If, if you need prayer, if you, uh, 
you know, would like to study the Bible with someone, let us know that. If you'd like to learn more about being a disciple and maybe joining this church family, becoming a part of what God is doing here at Oldham Lane, let us help you with that too. Ready to put on Christ in baptism. Whatever your need is, please let us know and come as we stand and as we sing.